From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. If you were to compile a list of people, living or dead, you'd want to speak to in order to get at the truth surrounding 9-11, the U.S. Federal Reserve, rigged elections, the suppression of cancer cures and treatments, the JFK assassination, and more, who would you want to meet and speak with? Well, Douglas Sirignano will be here this hour to talk about his conversations with the likes of Noam Chomsky the late Jim Mars, G. Edward Griffin, and others, and he'll reveal what they told him about these and other conspiracies again coming up this hour. Coming up in hour two, American guitarist, producer, and one of the founding members of Twisted Sister, J.J. French, joins me, and we'll talk about uh, the state of the uh, music business. Is rock dead, as uh, some have suggested? And uh, we'll also get J.J. to respond to a show we did a few months back with L.A. psychic Sloane Bella. You may recall she was on the on the program to talk about satanic Hollywood and satanic influences in the music business. And not long after hearing that show, J.J. got a hold of me and said, I'd like to come on and, and, and talk about that as well. So uh, we'll give him his, him his opportunity. And can't wait to talk to uh, to JJ. Uh, Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. Strange Planet. Make sure to hit that red sub button. For those intrepid souls seeking to peer deeper into America's greatest conspiracies, you do very well by reading Douglas Sirignano's voluminous book American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. From the foreknowledge of the attacks of Pearl Harbor in September 11, 2001, to the truth behind the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King, no conspiracy is left behind. Is the Federal Reserve System unconstitutional? Was the IRS created to bail out big banks? Are cancer cures and cheap alternatives, uh, cheap alternative energy being suppressed? Are elections made fraudulent by hacked voting machines? We'll get into as many of these as we possibly can. Douglas Sirignano graduated from Long Island University, summa cum laude, with a degree in history. His interview articles have appeared on Alex Jones's Infowars.com, Disinformation.com, Independent.org, in Adventure de l'Histoire magazine and on many other websites. And again, the book is American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Douglas Sirignano, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, very good. It's good to be here. A pleasure to have you. Let me ask you right out of the shoot, because this, this word conspiracy, I mean, when I started talking about conspiracies in the, in the late 90s on, on mainstream media, mainstream radio rather it was kind of a a curiosity and it was one of those things well nobody gets hurt you're talking about bigfoot you're talking about a lot of cold cases like jfk but lately we are seeing a real attitudinal change towards this this word on the part of 
uh, institutions like the mainstream media, uh, even, for example, intelligence uh, organizations in the United States have floated the idea that conspiracy theorists should be called domestic terrorists. So my question to you, Douglas, is, is it getting harder to publish a book like this? Is it getting harder to approach uh, publishers and wanting to write about these things? Perhaps. But well, my publisher is uh, uh, Skyhorse Publishing. They're probably the biggest publisher of uh, conspiracy theory literature. They published uh, 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 Roger Stone and uh, Jesse Ventura and Jerome Kersey. So they're into it, uh, Skyhorse. Um, I think it might be getting tougher. I think maybe it's come more to the mainstream because of the Internet, because so much of this information has come out with the advent of the Internet, and then more people are going to, like, Drudge.com and uh, Breitbart.com, and those uh, news sources are actually open to conspiracy theories. And so it's come more mainstream, I think, because of the Internet, but now that the deep state is seeing that more people are becoming aware then maybe they're going to try to suppress it more. And, you know, like you say, maybe you're right about that. Maybe it is going to become more difficult. Of all the people that you talk to, and I, I believe there are 12 uh, luminaries, yeah. really, the late Jim Mars, who I got a chance to know a little bit. He just passed recently, of course, Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, who wrote, uh, I think, uh, a book that's on every conspiracy uh, enthusiasts, if I can use that word, uh, yeah. uh, bookshelf, and that would be the the, the, the uh, creature from Jekyll Island, and we'll talk about the uh, the Federal Reserve a little bit. Uh, Professor David Ray Griffin, of course, on 9-11, uh, Dr. William Pepper, uh, who um, uh, was a good friend of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Jr., and uh, so many others, but who was there one in particular that that um, said something to you during the course of all of these interviews that really blew your socks off? Well, maybe Jim Morris. He talked about how maybe a conspiracy has been going back all the way to the first civilization, which was Sumeria, I believe, 5000 B.C. He thinks secret societies have been uh, controlling things since then. They've passed it down and down and down. So that notion there is is uh, will blow your socks off, you know? And he may be right about that. I think... Yeah, can at least trace it back to an organization called the Illuminati, which was formed in late 1700s. Very powerful men wanted to get behind the scenes and control uh, politics and then set up a big brother government. I believe that it's been handed down uh, from at least then. But Jim Morris seems, seems to think it's been around for 5,000 years. So that, that, was pretty alar- that was pretty amazing to hear about. Right. How long before Jim passed did you meet with him? I talked to him on the phone twice, and I think it was about nine months before he passed away. Ah, You know, it was fascinating about Jim because he was a perennial New York Times bestseller talking about these topics which are really becoming radioactive. And I don't know that there are too many other authors that that could pull that off. What do you think it was about Jim that he was able to sort of straddle those two worlds, This, as I say, this radioactive world of conspiracy, but also to get on the New York Times bestseller list? Yeah, you know, I should have asked him about that. That is a good question. I wanted to ask him, you know, Jim, how do your books get published by the big corporate uh, media when it's the corporations that are covering up the uh, conspiracies? I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer to that question, and I wish I had asked him because it's a good question, you know? Well, speaking of corporate media, you, you sat down with Professor Noam Chomsky or talked to him on the phone. Yes. Was he approachable? He, he really was. 
I didn't tell him I was going to write a book about conspiracy theories because he does not believe in conspiracy theories. But I sent him an email, and uh, I was surprised to get it back. And two weeks later, he said, if you can arrange it with my secretary, uh, you can do it. I think you could get an interview with him. I even offered to pay him, and he said, no, you don't have to pay me. I think if you want to get an interview, I think you could. <laughs> but he, he, does not, right. he does not believe in conspiracy theories, so I had to argue about him with that. <laughs> What did you ask him in particular about the corporate media? Because, you know, this is really uh, a subject of great importance these days when it seems like mainstream news organizations in particular are in the tank for one political party or another. What did yeah. Chomsky have to say about that? Um, well, he believes that, you know, it's the big corporations that control the media and it's probably, you know, pretty consolidated, six corporations that are connected to each other. And so they're always going to protect the interests of big business, you know. And and I think the big business interests are the same as the government's interests. So the, the mainstream media is just going to be the corporate government view, you know. I didn't talk to them so much about, like, whether it was uh, controlled by the right or left, uh, but more a corporate control, you know. Right. To me, what, what is interesting is that, for example, and I don't want to get overly political here, but obviously we know that the mainstream media is not particularly enamored of the current resident of the White House. And the only time they seem to applaud his efforts or, in fact, use the term presidential is when he bombs another country. Have you noticed that? Oh, that's a shame. You know, uh, I did notice that, but I, I could believe it, you know, because it seems like the deep state is always up for another war, you know, because I guess it makes a lot of money for the military-industrial complex. I didn't notice that, but uh, I know they're always hammering Trump, and they disagree with him when he bombs another country, right? Because that's the U.S. government for you. It's like a, a war machine, right? Right. But even CNN, who, let's face it, you know, are fairly liberal left of center, will call him presidential only if he bombs another country. Uh, now, Chomsky... Did he have a sort of a solution? I mean, what he's, is he suggesting that we break up this monopoly? It's not a, an entire monopoly. It's a virtual monopoly. Basically, six yeah. corporations run all the media. What was his solution? You know, I don't know if he really had a solution. His, his famous book on that is Manufacturing Consent. As you probably know, it's how yes. he feels the corporations and the deep state are controlling the media. You know, I don't think he has much of a solution. I bet if you call him up, you, you can ask him. I bet he, you can get him. Oh, wait a minute. You're a conspiracy theory. I don't know if he's into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, nah, I don't think he's got a solution, you know? Somebody said to make it more difficult for one corporation to own so many media outlets could be a solution. I think uh, that's something Ralph Nader said. So, Right. I guess it was really accelerated during the Clinton years when there was some deregulation because it used to be, for example, a media company couldn't own more than... Uh, you know, X number of stations in a market, let's say two TV stations or a handful of radio stations, and then that was all deregulated. And so then you had these bigger companies gobbling up uh, smaller ones, and they could virtually own the media, all of the media in one town, the newspapers, the television, oh. the radio. I think that's a movement towards Big Brother, if you ask me. Maybe the, like, I think a small amount of corporations, they want to get more and more power so maybe they did that so they can consolidate more and more power. Oh, who was, uh, somebody had a good quote about that. Bill Moyers, he said, the founders didn't count on large mega corporations 
not only owning the means, uh, the means of journalism, but so many of the areas that journalism should be covering, you know? Right. What was the one thing that you wanted to find out in particular about corporate media from Chomsky? Well, I maybe wanted to see if he thought it was a conspiracy, but he doesn't really, uh, because I think the conspiracy could be coming from the Council on Foreign Relations and the CIA, too, because so many of uh, the media outlets are run by people who belong to the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Council on Foreign Relations is one of the secretive New World Order think tanks that want to globalize the world. They want to get the big brother, I think. And so I asked him about that. He said, no, no, it's, but, I, you know, some people think that's where the conspiracy is. And also, you know, you probably know the CIA had a specific program, Operation Mockingbird, to yes. make sure they have so many, they could have a lot of influence over the media. And I think a lot of the media is answering to uh, CIA influence. I think that's why Trump is always getting hammered. God, I feel sorry for the guy sometimes. <laughs> but I think the conspiracy might be coming from the Council on Foreign Relations at CIA, although Chomsky did not believe that. He, he doesn't go up for that. Does Chomsky believe that Operation Mockingbird was real, or does he is he dismissive of that idea as well? Oh, you know, I should have asked him that specifically. I did ask him about the CIA's influence. I asked him about the church committee. And right. I, you could you could see it in, in the interview I did with him. Uh, he thinks that it doesn't have, like, that much control. That's my impression that I got from him, that it has uh, some control, but not like a overarching control that some people think the CIA might have, because that, that was the purpose of Operation Mockingbird, to really get... Uh, a, a pervasive control over the media. I don't think he believes that, though. All right. Let's move on to uh, G. Edward Griffin and the Federal Reserve Bank. And I mentioned his landmark work, The Creature from Jekyll Island. What did G. Edward Griffin tell you about the formation of the, the, the Federal Reserve back in 1913? Because a lot of people think that was kind of uh, rammed through Congress during the Christmas break when a lot of a lot of yeah. people were uh, had already left the Capitol, uh, and and uh, and so they were. That's the only way they were were able to squeak yeah. that piece of controversial legislation through. Yeah, he definitely talked about that, and also, you know, the meeting at Jekyll Island where banking representatives and uh, Senator Nelson Aldridge they met at Jekyll Island right before it got snuck through, and that was done very secretively. Also, that's probably something that a lot of people who are into conspiracies know about that. It was really done pretty surreptitiously. Get the Federal Reserve, like you said, it was a Christmas holiday when a lot of the uh, congressmen weren't around, and they got it slipped through there. Yeah, it was pretty much maybe uh, secretive and conspiratorial. One of the things that uh, Mr. Griffin always told me is, uh, and you know, on others obviously, but I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with him maybe a half a dozen times, and he said, you know, the big misconception about the the Fed is it's neither federal nor is it a reserve, nor is it a bank. Uh, yeah. How did he describe the Federal Reserve Bank to you and its purpose? He, yeah, just like that, really. <laughs> he, he calls it a cartel, you know. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a complicated uh, subject. Um, but he said, yeah, they don't really have any reserves, that they create money out of nothing, you know. And it's not federal because I think he said part of the Federal Reserve is part of the government, but part is a private corporation. And uh, as I understand it, you know, it's pretty complicated, but I understand that if the government issued its own money through excise and import taxes, instead of borrowing from the Federal Reserve, we wouldn't have to pay interest on our money, 
and so we could avoid a big debt. You know, that's as, as much as I understand. And also, if the government issued the money in, in proper proportion, either on the gold standard or in uh, proper proportion with the uh, expansion of goods and services, then we wouldn't have inflation. But this, this system we have is causing debt and inflation, and it's no good for us. That's, that's you know, about as much as I understand, because it's a pretty complicated subject, you know? It is indeed, and, and uh, most most of us don't really understand money. There's something very sort of uh, magical uh, or even occultic about about yeah. uh, about money. Um, did he talk to you about the importance of um, auditing the Fed? Because we hear uh, a lot about that, and nothing seems to happen. What would yeah. that What would that involve? Auditing the Fed. Well, you know, again, it's complicated to me, but, uh, yeah, he said he should audit, but he thinks he should be more than auditing. He agrees with, like, Ron Paul that we should end the Fed, you know. Maybe not auditing is enough, but if we did audit the Fed, then at least, you know, maybe the secretiveness, because the Fed acts independently of the Congress and the President, and uh, to audit it would at least give us an idea a little bit about what's going on. But he believes it, we should do more than that, and that's end the Fed. Did you happen to mention to him, or did he mention to you the fact that a number of presidents, the only two presidents really that have sort of openly challenged the Fed, ended up being shot in the head in public? Um, Jim Morris talked about that <laughs> to me. Ah. Um, G. Edward Griffin would probably, uh, although he believes that when Kennedy, you're talking about Lincoln and Kennedy, right? Yes. Uh, when he, when Kennedy issued uh, money outside of the Federal Reserve, I think he believes that that wasn't a very significant, that he only issued a little bit. And I think it's his opinion that Kennedy wasn't shot for that reason. Uh, but other people think that maybe that had something to do with it. I know Jim Mars believes that had something to do with it. Yeah, because it's so important. The Federal Reserve is is the way that the most powerful people in the world, I believe, and other central banks, control us. They control us through interest rates. They control the economy through these central banks. And I hope uh, Donald Trump doesn't get shot in the head because he's always uh, speaking out against it. And uh, I don't know, as many polls as Trump has, if he could do something to end the Fed, then God bless him. Because uh, I think Trump, you know, for all his personality flaws, the fact that he uh, wants to maybe do something about the Fed is admirable to me because it's at the heart of the economy and our troubles, I believe. The banking system is something we should get rid of. Douglas, stay put. We're going to take a quick time out and we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about uh, rigged elections, suppressed cancer cures, and much more. Douglas Sirignano is the author of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Douglas Sirignano is with us, and uh, his new book, uh, Voluminous, to say the least, American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, and that's published by Skyhorse. Uh, we're coming up on the 56th anniversary of the JFK assassination next month, 
And uh, to cover off this topic, you, you chose kind of an interesting individual to interview, and that's Barr McClellan, who was LBJ's attorney. Uh, what, why did you go to Barr McClellan? What was it you wanted to, to learn from Barr? Um, well, I, I remember I saw him on C-SPAN, and he just seemed so interesting. His, it was sensational. He's saying that LBJ was the mastermind of the Kennedy assassination. I thought there was something to that. I don't believe that. I believe it was more the um, military-industrial complex and the CIA. But I think LBJ had a foreknowledge, and he, he might have he might have helped, you know. And I think, that, but L, you know, some people believe that that LBJ was the the mastermind. I think Roger Stone just wrote a book about that. I think Jacqueline yes. Kennedy believed that. Um, I think he had something to do with it. He knew about it, but I don't think I think it was more uh, military-industrial complex and CIA. I, I agree with you. I, he certainly had, uh, perhaps, arguably, the most to gain from uh, yes. Kennedy's death, because as as Barr McClellan explained, and as you also uh, discuss in the in the book, uh, if it if it weren't for Kennedy's assassination, Johnson may have ended up in prison. Explain. Oh well, he Johnson was a lot more crooked than most people might know. I think he was taking a lot of money under the table when he was a the senator. Senate Majority Leader in the 50s, he was, uh, I think he was in politics just to make money. And uh, he would say whatever he had to say to get elected. And he, there were a number of scandals he was involved with. Um, there was this guy, Bobby Baker, who was a very corrupt, uh, he worked in the Senate, he went to prison. Johnson was his uh, mentor. Another guy, Billy Solestis, a corrupt uh, businessman down in Texas, they were investigating his business dealings and Johnson apparently helped him make money in an illegal way. So, yes, Johnson very well might have gone to prison if Kennedy had been assassinated. Once he got into the presidency, then he could control, you know, uh, control the investigation into himself, and he blocked it. He stopped it. And and Barr McClellan is also, uh, well, he claims to have insider knowledge that, that uh, Johnson stole, I believe, the 1948 Texas Senate race. I mean, there was some... Some payoffs and uh, uh, yeah. falsification of, of, of votes and so forth. Did Mar- Bar McClelland tell you he had insider knowledge that that was the case? Yes, yes, he did. He actually, um, maybe the, the head lawyer, he, Bar McClelland worked for the law firm that uh, represented uh, LBJ, and one of the top lawyers in the firm was a guy named Don Thomas, and Don Thomas basically. Uh, explained to Barr McClellan that he stole votes in 1948 Senate race. He told him how he did it. So uh, Barr McClellan, yes, he said he had uh, he had the inside information on that. He was told by one of the lawyers there uh, that he was the guy who did it. And just uh, another example of how corrupt uh, LBJ was. Right, right. Uh, did you ask Barr McClellan about LBJ's mistress, Madeline Brown, who... According to the legend, and we don't know if it's true or not, but the, she claims that after uh, a late night meeting the day before the assassination at, uh, I think it was Clint Murchison's house, uh, that was also attended allegedly by George Herbert Walker Bush, perhaps even Richard Nixon, uh, and, and many others, but, but, uh, according to Madeline Brown, Johnson left that meeting and told her, after tomorrow, that SOB Jack Kennedy will never embarrass me again. Yes. Have you heard that story? Yes, I've heard that. Yes, I did ask him about that. 
I asked him if he felt she was uh, credible, and he said he, he wasn't sure. He said some people think she was, some people think it wasn't, but he said it doesn't matter because there's so much evidence anyway that Johnson was a part of the assassination that it doesn't matter. He, he, he couldn't figure out if she was credible or not. But I think she's right on. If you go to YouTube and uh, type in Madeline Brown, I think she says it in a video on YouTube. She says that Johnson told her that. So you, you, I bet maybe you can look into her eyes there and see if you think she's telling the truth. <laughs> right, right. Did you talk about you know, why Kennedy took Johnson? Was it simply because he needed needed Texas? I mean, you have this, this uh, as you point out, I think you used the term dark Kennedy was the light and dark Johnson was the oh, darkness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't talk to him. Why did he take uh, Johnson? Now, that's a good question. Um, no, I, I don't know. That's I did not ask him that. So that would be, why did Kennedy take, somebody's probably got an explanation for that. <laughs> Right. Uh, you also talked to, to Dr. William Pepper on uh, Martin Luther King uh, assassination. How well did, did uh, Pepper know King? He knew him very well in the last year of his life, though, only in the last year, but he became uh, pretty good friends with him to the point that when Dr. King decided he was going to run for president in 1968, they had a convention and he asked Pepper to introduce him. He was the guy who introduced Dr. King when he was running for president, and uh, Mar- uh, Pepper ended up being one of the pallbearers at uh, Martin Luther King's uh, funeral. He knew him pretty darn well, but he only looked, knew him in the last year of his life. Uh, I met uh, Dr. Pepper in, in uh, New York, and, and he kind of not blamed himself, but he said that what had happened, he thought, was when when King became dangerous was after Pepper had showed him images of what was going on in, in uh, the war in Vietnam, that that really politicized King. Yes. And when he started speaking out against the war in Vietnam, yes. that was basically the nail in his coffin. Did you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. That's what he said. Exactly what you said, that, uh, that he feels that's the main reason that uh, he was killed because all the uh, the military-industrial complex wanted the Vietnam War, and he he felt sad because he was the one who inspired Dr. King to um, to speak out against the Vietnam War. I think it was a famous speech Dr. King made in the Riverside Church in Manhattan. He said, "I believe the U.S. government to be the worst purveyor of violence on the face of the earth." And then right after that, he started protesting the Vietnam War. Pepper said that when he first met him, he showed him uh, pictures, Dr. King pictures of um, the, what was happening to Vietnam children as a result of the U.S. bombings. And, you know, the children were being killed and massacred. And uh, Dr. King actually started crying uh, right there when he saw those pictures. Then that's when he decided he was going to uh, uh, protest the Vietnam War. And that, in all likelihood, in Pepper's view, uh, caused his assassination. Uh, what did uh, Bill Pepper tell you about his first meeting with James Earl Ray, the supposed gunman? He said that he uh, he grilled him for five hours. Uh, he had a uh, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King's uh, associate, was there, and he had a body language expert from Harvard there, and he grilled him. <laughs> he grilled him for five hours, and they all concluded there's no way that this guy uh, could have done it. He, he, was a, he had a very docile, peaceful uh, personality, and they all concluded 
that uh, there's no way this guy shot Dr. King. So what did what did Pepper talk to you uh, uh, about evidence about the about the FBI's involvement? Um, let me see. Uh, you know, I don't think he talked about FBI. He talked about military intelligence. He actually interviewed some guys who worked for Army Intelligence, and they told him that they were in Memphis, April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, with orders to shoot Dr. King, um, and. Uh, as far as the FBI, the FBI had a counter pro program. This was a program to um, to discredit Dr. King, and that's about as much evidence there. He talked to me more about Army intelligence being involved, and that these guys confessed to him that he was involved. I don't know if he talked so much about FBI to me. Did he talk to you about how they would how they used the mob or or you know local mob mobsters or even the local police to do their dirty work? Yes, yes, he said that. Yes. Um, that's actually who, uh, there was a mobster there, and uh, somebody walked in. He owned a grocery store, and somebody walked in there about an hour before the assassination. The guy heard this mobster saying, shoot the son of a bitch when he comes out on the balcony. And then also the police seemed to be a part of it. Yes, that's what Pepper believes. Um, ultimately, you know, it's, he believes, you know, it's U.S. intelligence was manipulating the police and the mafia. And I, I don't think that's something new. I mean, they tried to use uh, the mafia that killed uh, Fidel Castro, and uh, I think that's happened in other cases also. And we should point out that uh, in the the interview, you asked him directly whether he knows who fired the fatal shot from the bushes. Did he reveal that to you? Yes, he he didn't reveal it to me, but he said it was in his new book. I forget what his new book was. His old book was Act of State. Oh, whatever his new book is on the... uh, on the uh, assassination, he said it's revealed in there who, who took the shot. And what about the involvement of uh, this gentleman, Lloyd Jowers, who was, uh, I believe, uh, named in the civil trial uh, yes. in uh, in the late nineties? Uh, yeah. Lloyd yeah. Jowers and other and other conspirators. Who was Lloyd Jowers? He was just a guy. I think he got brought in because he knew the police and also. He owned a restaurant, a grill, which is directly behind the uh, Lorraine Motel where King got shot. And so I guess they needed him because apparently uh, that was a good place to hide the gun because somebody said that right after King got shot, some woman who knew Lord Jowers saw him run into the back of the restaurant with a, gun, with a rifle right after the shot and then hide it under the counter. But Pepper says he didn't take the shot. He took it from the assassin. I think Jowers had connections to corrupt policemen, and he was getting paid off by the mafia, and so he, he had a place from where they could make a good shot from, so that's how he, he got brought in. We should point out that uh, James Earl Ray was essentially exonerated in the, the civil trial in uh, the late uh, 1990s. When we'll come back, we'll, we'll talk about uh, 9-11, of course, uh, uh, regarding uh, Professor David Ray Griffin. You spoke to him, and we'll talk about these voting machines, well, black thanks. voting machines. More of my conversation with Douglas Sirgnano, author of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. 
Before we get back to uh, more of our discussion with Douglas Sirignano on American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, and we'll talk about Dr. Ray Griffin in uh, just a moment. But first, let's take a quick call, and we have Michael from Newmarket. Welcome. Hello, Richard. I want to talk about what you guys were talking about earlier on, about, you know, how the media controls everything. It seems to me that mainstream media on TV, the news anchor people, are mostly to the left. But when you come to Fox, they seem to want to exonerate Donald Trump. Now, on the radio, you note that most of the talk show hosts are conservative. Let's say... Rush Limbaugh, Bill Cunningham, the Savage, and all those people. So the conservatives are, uh, you know, run the talk shows. Yeah, the talk shows are, are different because they're paid to give their opinions, whereas, uh, as you mentioned, journalists are, are not supposed to uh, opine. I will say one thing about Fox, though, is since Rupert Murdoch's children took over, his sons, They've been changing that network quite a bit, and it, particularly in the daytime, if you watch, there's definitely more of a liberal bent. But then you're right. In the evening, you've got Laura Ingram, you've got Sean Hannity. They're certainly, again, though, they're paid to uh, bloviate, if you will, uh, and they are, they're definitely more on the right. But I read an interesting statistic. 93% of working journalists in the United States are registered Democrats. 93%. Wow. And uh, 7% Republicans. So that's the three main networks then, ABC, uh, CNN, CBS, whatever. Well, it's not just the mainstream networks. It seems to be just about all working journalists. Now, that may have just been for television and radio, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, Michael, thank you for that. Did you want to weigh in on that uh, that, that comment, Douglas? That's interesting what you said, Richard, that 93% are, are, are liberals? My God. And then, Registered well, Democrats, then I, right? I think we should uh, listen to the radio more. Then I think, and hopefully, people are looking on the internet more too. I think maybe the mainstream media is uh, is dying because it seems like it is too uh, 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 intent on putting out the leftist uh, maybe propaganda, even if it's true or not. So maybe more people are going to uh, Drudge.com and Breitbart.com, so to get a more balanced view of things. So that would be good. Uh, you you sat down with Professor David Ray Griffin to talk about 9-11. And um, I know one of the big questions you had for him was about the fact that you have this incredibly efficient air force in the United States. And, and yet, uh, you know, those planes were allowed to, f- you know, to fly around 30, 35, 40 minutes without being intercepted. Uh, did, yeah. did Griffin have an explanation for that? Um, he said it was pretty complicated. And he said that you should look at his book, um, one of his books that gives a more uh, detailed explanation of it. Uh, but the bottom line was that the uh, Air Force did have enough time to intercept the planes. He didn't give me a detailed answer. He said, you have to look in one of my books. I forget. Uh, I think debunk, debunking, uh, debunking a 9-11 debunking. I think that's the one where he gives a right, detailed right. explanation on that. You also ask him about all the, the the fact that there were so many firsts on 9/11, and that all of these firsts, you know, that never happened before, but it happened on 9/11, and that they're yes. suspicious. Just walk us through some of those, if you could. Um, I think the first is uh, a, a building has never collapsed due to a fire. It's never happened before. Buildings they can withstand uh, uh, the 
the heat from jet fuel uh, doesn't cause a building to collapse. Buildings only collapse through controlled demolition. Another thing at first was they didn't find the black box from the jets. Is also uh, awfully suspicious, I think. You know, the black box is indestructible, and it shows you what happened, uh, how the plane crashed, and they did not find the black box from the uh, planes that hit into the World Trade Center. Those are two that I remember. Uh, those are pretty big ones, I think. Oh, I, w- I would say for sure, for sure. Uh, t- now, I've talked about this uh, previously but uh, with other uh, guests, but I'd like you to tell me what Griffin said about all of these witnesses uh, that came forward, people always say, you know, if it was a conspiracy, where are the whistleblowers? But a number of people have come forward to talk about bombs going off in the basement of uh, yeah. either the North or South Tower and also Building 7. Uh, talk to yeah. me about that. Oh, why aren't there more whistleblowers, you mean? Well, no, the fact that, you know, a number of people have come forward to talk about bombs going off. In the basement yeah. before the planes hit the building. Oh yeah, I did talk to him about that. There was a guy, a William Rodriguez, who's a janitor in the uh, uh, World Trade Center, and he said a number of people saw uh, bombs going off in the basement of the building. And he he testified to the 9/11 Commission. He told them that, but they didn't include that in the official report. And uh, then there was two guys that got stuck in the uh, World Trade Center number seven. They got stuck on like the eighth floor. Uh, they they were up there, and then some bombs went off under them, and they couldn't get down. Um, they couldn't get down because the elevator shaft was bombed out. This was before the building collapsed. And then when they got down into the uh, into the lobby, they saw the whole lobby had been bombed out, and there was dead people lying there. These these guys testified to it. They worked for the New York City government for Mayor Giuliani. One of them was eventually killed suspiciously. And uh, so, yeah, there were people, and there's a bunch of firemen and policemen who heard bombs going off that day, you know. I mean, it seems so obvious that uh, bombs were going off, and, you know, it's a mystery why the mainstream media doesn't do a report on that. And it just makes you think the conspiracy theory is right, that the mainstream media is controlled, is controlled, you know. All right. Well, speaking of black boxes, we'll talk about voting machines uh, black box voting when we come back more of my conversation with Douglas Sirignano American conspiracies and cover-ups stay with us don't be afraid of the dark the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio to talk to Richard call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740 Welcome back just a reminder coming up at the top of the hour Twisted Sister co-founder American guitarist music producer JJ French will be here right now Douglas Sirignano stays with us a few moments yet to talk about American conspiracies and cover-ups and, uh, well, from black boxes to black voting machines, uh, let's talk about your conversation with uh, Bev Harris on stolen elections. Uh, just first set the scene. Uh, tell us a little bit about who Bev Harris is. Oh, well, you know, she is con- she's the author of a book called Black Box Voting, and she's considered maybe the uh, foremost expert on stolen elections and how elections are stolen. 
She's been. They did a documentary about her on HBO. She's been on MSNBC, CNN. So she's pretty well known. But you don't see her around anymore. I don't know if the uh, corporate media is uh, or the deep state is using their influence to uh, silence her. But um, she says that uh, we can't use computerized voting machines because because the people can't see if they're counting the uh, votes correctly. The only people who can see it is the computer. Uh, company, and if they have a partisan prejudice, then they can easily um, change the votes around for the Republican or the Democrat, and she says it's happened many times, and uh, it's not a good way to have a democracy, you know? Right. Well, this really goes back to uh, the 2000 presidential election. We had Al Gore, a Democrat, running against uh, George Walker, George W. Bush. And we had the uh, this discrepancy or uh, a discrepancy of si- something like sixteen thousand votes. Oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Tell us, you know, what happened there and how these machines may have been responsible, or, yeah. or the people that were had access to these machines. Oh yeah, that was really something. It was um, at George Bush. He needed sixteen thousand votes to win Florida, and if he won Florida, then he wins the presidency. And so he needed 16,000, and so one of the machines down there uh, tallied up negative 16,000, which it, it's, it, it can't do that. You don't have negative votes. It put a negative count. And right after that happened, Jeb Bush was on the phone with this guy at Fox News who was Jeb Bush's cousin. He's George Bush's cousin. And that happened, and then Jeb Bush said to this guy, we won. And the, the guy, his first cousin at Fox started uh uh, wanting to call the election for Bush, and that's how the election get called. I think if the media calls them, then, then that means the guy won. So, and eventually it got uh, those sixteen thousand got put put back on, and then what? What did it take two or three months before he finally uh, got a president? But it was very suspicious, you know. As Bev Harris said in Florida, like the election tampering and was over the top. It was over the top, obvious election tampering. And I guess that's because Jeb Bush uh, was George Bush's brother. Right. And and did Bev Harris talk to you about how this is done? How are they able to flip votes from one candidate to another using these voting machines? Well, you know, she uh, she was on MSNBC once. I think she showed how it can be done to um, uh, Dean, the guy who's the governor of Vermont, um, Howard Dean, she showed her how easily it can be done. Um, you know, it's done from a, a hacker, a computer hacker. You know, they can, you know, s- cyberly or by cyber uh, abilities get in there and just change a few numbers around, and it can be done very easily, you know. Um, how many How many states do you know, how many states are using these voting machines if they can so easily be hacked into? Why, why don't they go to a, a paper ballot? Oh man, well that that you know, that would take a lot of change and a lot of effort, you know. And uh, you know maybe the politicians in the different states are corrupted and they they want to keep it that way, or to to steal elections, you know. Uh, I don't think much um, much uh, progress has been made since Bev Harris uh, started her activism. Since she wrote a book, I don't think there's much progress because the system and the politicians are still corrupt. I think. We just have a few minutes yet, but let's talk about your interview with former IRS agent Joe Bannister, who talked to you, kind of a, a whistleblower on income tax. 
What yeah. was uh, the gist of of uh, this former IRS agent Joe Bannister's comments? Well, he, uh, he believes that you know the income tax is actually unconstitutional. It's not good for the public. Um, it's uh, the IRS is too abusive. You know, the founding fathers never wanted an income tax, and they never wanted a, uh, a privately owned central bank like the Federal Reserve. And it's just a way to uh, I don't know. I think it came from the Illuminati. The Illuminati was a group uh, formed in the late 1700s. Men wanted to get behind politics and control uh, world government. They listed ten ways to form the perfect world government, big brother government. One was to have an income tax. Another was to have a privately owned central bank, which is what the Federal Reserve and income tax is. So these elites, uh, these big bankers who control politics, they got this uh, Federal Reserve and income tax created because it's just a way for more and more of our money to be, be to go over to the Federal Reserve and the government. It's a way to, for the public's uh, financial strength to be sapped and for eventually the, the uh, Federal Reserve and the income tax to uh, uh, have all our money so they can get the big brother. That's the, the big conspiracy theory, you know? Other than that, he says the income tax is just uh, the IRS is too abusive and he believes uh, we'd be better off without it. You you uh, you mentioned a letter here that was uh, sent to uh, the tax honesty movement by a Hawaii senator Daniel Inouye back in 1989. Uh, do you remember the contents of that letter? Oh yeah, I think I have that. Yeah, that's. Um, oh yeah, this protester said sent a letter to Hawaii Senator Daniel Inouye, and he sent the letter back to him saying the senator from Hawaii said there is no provision of the Internal Revenue Code that specifically and unequivocally requires an individual to pay an income tax. So because, you know, the founding fathers were really against an income tax, and they uh, drafted the Constitution in a way to make it almost impossible because they saw that way that that's how government oppresses the citizenry through too much taxes. And so people like Joe Bannister, they actually believe the income tax is unconstitutional and illegal, and apparently Senator uh, from Hawaii also believe that, too. I think Ron Paul believes that also, you know. Right, right. And this uh, this former IRS agent that you interviewed, Joe Bannister, uh, what has become of him? I mean, after you have someone from the IRS sort of blowing the whistle on the IRS and saying that income tax is unconstitutional, uh, what becomes of someone like that? Is he able to work again? What does he do now? You know, I think he works as an accountant. Um, there was another woman who was an ex-IRS agent who um, was doing protesting. She quit the IRS. Her name was Shirley Peel Jackson, and uh, uh, she was protesting, saying the income tax is unconstitutional, unfair, and they put her in prison for a while, and I think she was mistreated there. But I think Joe Bannister, you know, the IRS does intimidate people, even people like Joe Bannister, because I believe he feels it's a it's a big task to try to make understand people understand that the income tax is unfair because the IRS is such a powerful organization. So I think he's working as a uh, an accountant now, but I think that you know his is he's we realize that the, it's tough to fight the IRS, you know. But ho- hopefully, maybe maybe we can do it. How do people get a copy of American Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, Douglas? My website is AmericanConspiracies and Cover-Ups.com, exact name of the book. You've got to put a slash between cover and ups. 
and it's on Amazon. So Amazon on my website. Terrific. American Conspiracies and Cover hyphen ups dot com. American Conspiracies and Cover hyphen ups dot com also available at Amazon. Uh, Douglas, thanks so much for this. All the best. Thank you very much. It was great. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Douglas Sirignano. All right. When we come back, JJ French, co founder of eighties icon heavy metal band. Twisted Sister. We'll talk about the state of the music business and also, is there a satanic influence in the music business? He'll be here to tell us all that and much more. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Message and data rates may apply. Ladies and gentlemen, this may be the last time you ever have to worry about hair loss. Because Bosley is the real deal. They're giving women and men their hair back permanently. They're real hair. All it takes to get started is a single text message. You'll get an absolutely free information kit and a free gift card when you text FAN55 to 85850. Bosley will show you for free how great your hair could look. You'll also see, for free, why you're losing hair and how to get it back. Women and men all over the country trust Bosley because they're America's number one hair restoration expert. Ahead of the curve with the latest technology. And the best part? Bosley has permanent solutions to hair loss. You'll love what they'll do for your hair. So drop what you're doing long enough to send a text. Get your free information kit and gift card for $250 off by texting FAN55 to 85850. Don't forget, that's FAN55 to 85850.